Let's turn in the text uh, this morning to the passage we're going to be looking at, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, and if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 786. And we're continuing a short, uh, just three-part series that we began last week uh, on law and grace. As we talked about last week, we as Christians, we believe that we are saved uh, through faith in Jesus Christ and that this is a gift. It's God's grace to us. There's nothing that any of us, you, me, or anyone else can do to earn God's favor or our relationship with him, and so it's, it's just a pure gift from God, our salvation. And yet, as we talked about last week, there's also all these commands, all these laws, all these moral exhortations in Scripture. And so what do we do with those two different things? How do we balance law and grace uh, together? And that's really what we're looking at in this series, and we continue that this morning. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples here, and this is what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, when it comes to movies, and I know I used movies as my sermon introduction last week too, but I'm kind of running out of material, so. Uh, it's hard to make a good sequel. You see, no matter how successful a movie is, no matter how much money it makes, no matter how many people go and see it, no matter how much they like it, there's no guarantee that if Hollywood decides to make a sequel to it, that it will be any good. After all, the list of disappointing sequels in Hollywood's history is about as long, I would say, as the number of good ones it's put out. And yet every once in a while, they get it right. Uh, take the Captain America sequel, for instance, from a few years back, and I know I'm dating myself with this example, but uh, the first Captain America movie came out in 2011, and overall, it did a good job of introducing the world to who Captain America is, to his character, to what he's all about, to his role among the millions of other Marvel superheroes that they keep making movies about. But you didn't really get to know Captain America who he is, what made him tick, what his motivations were, until the sequel came out a few years later, Captain America the Winter Soldier. That's because that sequel took the qualities from the first film that made Captain America an interesting character, a commitment to justice, for instance, courage in the face of oppression, loyalty to those closest to him, and then it put those qualities and those virtues to the test, to see how he would stand up in the face of fear, desperation, and betrayal. While the first Captain America movie explored the contrasts between good and evil, power and morality, bravery and arrogance, all in order to tell a superhero story, the sequel kind of flipped that formula on its head. Because this time, rather than telling a superhero story with those themes sort of thrown in, 
The sequel was more of an examination of those themes themselves. It just happened to use superheroes to talk about them. And that's what made it a good sequel. That's what a good sequel does. It takes the themes of the original movie and then builds on them. It picks up the story, the characters, the drama, and it goes deeper. That's what makes a sequel compelling, interesting, or worth watching if it takes the story to the next level. And in the same way, that's what Jesus does here in our passage for this morning. Now, we often refer to this passage in the chapters that uh, surround it, Matthew chapters five through seven, as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But you could almost call this sermon by a different name. You could almost call it Jesus' sequel on the Mount. Because the truth is that that's actually what Jesus is doing here. He's preaching a sequel of sorts to another sermon from earlier in Scripture. The sermon we looked at last week, in fact. The sermon the Old Testament leader of Israel, Moses, gave the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, we talked about that last week, right? We said that Deuteronomy is really one big speech or sermon of sorts that Moses gives to the people of Israel. Just before Israel was going to cross the Jordan River into the promised land that God had given them, Moses gathered all of Israel together on the plains of Moab and for 34 chapters reviewed for them how they were supposed to live once they crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land to live there. Now, the reason we said that Moses does that, that he preaches that sermon to the Israelites, is because the Israelites weren't moving into the promised land alone, were they? Instead, God was moving in with them. He was going to live and dwell with the Israelites in the promised land, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was going to be the Garden of Eden 2.0. And so that's why Moses gave that sermon to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. Because if God was going to move in and live with them, if he was going to share the same space with them, if they were going to be there in his domain, then they needed to be holy. And so that's what Moses told them. That's the book of Deuteronomy in a nutshell. It's Moses' attempt to get the Israelites to remember everything that they're supposed to do, not do, be, and not be as God's people living with him in the promised land. And now, in the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus has given us a sequel. The only problem is that we tend to forget the Sermon on the Mount is a sequel. You see, too often these days when Christians read these chapters, rather than, uh, rather than recognizing that Jesus is building off of the Old Testament and going deeper with it here, like any good sequel does, we tend to think that Jesus is, is superseding the Old Testament, that he's replacing it, that he's, he's putting it aside and swapping it out for something better. Rather than see all the ways that Jesus is affirming, upholding, and building off the Old Testament law and prophets in these chapters, we think Jesus is setting himself up as a new prophet with a new law for a new people of God. And the implication then is that we no longer have to pay attention to those old prophets and those old laws from the Old Testament anymore. We just sort of get to ignore them. But again, that's not how sequels work, right? A sequel to a movie doesn't replace the original film, does it? 
It doesn't make it so that the original film never happened, and neither does Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's not trying to replace the Old Testament here. Instead, what he does is he takes all the themes and theology and significance of the Old Testament and he builds on it. He takes it to the next level. He deepens it and widens it and advocates for a deeper, fuller faithfulness to the Old Testament laws and commands. How do we know that? Because that's what he says. See, that's actually what that word fulfill in verse 17 here, that's what that word means. In verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word Jesus uses there in the Greek is pleurosi, and what it literally means is to fill up, to fill to the brim. Uh, The way that you can almost hear Jesus saying this verse is, do not think I have come to empty the law and the prophets. I have not come to empty them, but to fulfill them, to fill them up, to fill them to the brim, to fill them fully. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's actually why Jesus brings up the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at the end of this passage. Because while Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law, to fill it up, what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing at the time was trying to empty it out. They were draining or emptying the law of its significance. Now that might sound a little strange, right? After all, when we think about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law these days, we tend to imagine these super holy people, right? These were the religious experts of the time. These were the people who spent all day, every day, studying the word of God so that they and everyone else could keep it perfectly. So why am I saying that they were trying to empty the law of its significance? Well, what we don't often realize these days is that there was a reason the Pharisees and teachers of the law were so good at keeping God's law. And that's that, over the years, they had come up with all sorts of interpretations of the law that kind of watered it down, made them easier to follow. Pastor and author John Stott describes this process in his commentary on this passage. What he basically says is that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had two tactics for making the commands of the Old Testament easier to follow. First, they narrowed the limitations of the things that the Old Testament prohibited. So for example, with the command, you shall not murder, what the Pharisees and teachers of the law said was that that law narrowly meant that you yourself just shouldn't physically kill someone. According to them, that command only dealt with you physically taking someone else's life. Anything else that might be related to killing someone, though, uh, for instance, hating them, treating them poorly, planning out how you would kill them if you wanted to, even if you don't, even, according to some rabbis, having someone else kill them on your behalf, that was all fair game. As long as you yourself didn't actually kill them, you were, according to their interpretation of the law, still innocent of breaking this command. Just as a side note, by the way, but this is actually how the religious leaders at the time justified killing Jesus. They were the ones who wanted him dead, right? They were the ones who came up with the plan, the plot, 
to kill him. They were even the ones who arrested him, but legally, the Jewish people couldn't carry out the death sentence. They needed the Romans to do that, and so that's what the Pharisees and teachers of the law had happened. They got the Romans to sentence Jesus to death. And so that, according to their interpretation of the law, meant that they weren't guilty. They set the whole process in motion, but because it was the Romans who actually killed Jesus, they believed that they were innocent. You see how this sort of thing makes the law easier to follow, narrowing its interpretation like that? The Pharisees and teachers of the law had so narrowed their interpretations of the Old Testament commands that at least for some people, you could pretty much live however you wanted, and as long as you kept the literal letter of the law, you were okay. On the flip side though, when it came to the things that the law permitted, the Pharisees and teachers of the law would broaden those commands. So for example, according to Deuteronomy 24 verse one, if a man found something indecent about his wife, he could give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now the original intent of that law had to do with adultery. That's the meaning of indecent in the original Hebrew. To put it literally, if a man found out that his wife had been indecent without clothes with another man, he could divorce her. That was the basis the law gave for divorce. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees and teachers of the law had broadened that command. You see, many rabbis at the time had started to interpret that word indecent as anything that made a husband unhappy. In fact, there was even one rabbi at the time, Rabbi Hillel, who argued that if a man's wife even burned his dinner, that was indecent enough for him to divorce her. Okay? What that meant was that Jewish men at the time could basically divorce their wives for any and every reason. This did not, by the way, go the other way. Women could not divorce their husbands for any and every reason, but Jewish men could. And what that was doing in a culture where divorced women were considered social and economic outsiders was making uh, the lives of many Jewish women absolutely unbearable. That's what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing. They were taking the tough parts of the law and making them tougher to break, while at the same time taking the easy parts of the law and making them easier to keep. And the end result was that God's law was emptied of its significance and value. Think of it this way, and I thought long and hard about this illustration, it's gonna be really good. Imagine that the full obedience of the law is kinda like this glass of water. This is the full amount of obedience that it takes uh, to fulfill one of the Old Testament laws. What the Pharisees and teachers of the law kept doing was little by little, just pouring more and more out until They were just left with a little bit. That's how they were treating the law of God, emptying of of its significance and value and worth so that it was easier and easier to keep. When we hear what Jesus says at the end of this passage, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, we think, oh, but they were so righteous, they were so holy, we could never live that way until you think about what they were actually doing. And so that's why Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law because what he has come to do is fill it back up, give it its meaning, its significance again, and call people to keep it fully. That's what Jesus means here. 
He wants to give the law the significance and value that it originally had. That's why we could refer to his sermon here as the sequel on the mount. Because far from preaching a shallow obedience that tries to water down the commands of the Old Testament, what Jesus is doing here is preaching a deeper, fuller commitment to them. Again, contrary to what we might think, Jesus isn't teaching against or contradicting the Old Testament in this sermon. Instead, what he's doing here is teaching against and contradicting the Pharisees and teachers of the law, misinterpretations of the Old Testament. And in place of those misinterpretations, what he does is call us back to a fuller obedience. Now, what does that fuller obedience look like? Well, Jesus actually gives us a few examples here. For instance, in the verses just after our passage for this morning, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Then in verses 27 through 28, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then right after that, he says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus goes on. He's got three more examples after that too. Six times Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount. Six times he brings us back to the heart of the law. He teaches about murder, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, justice, and loving others. And each time what he does is bring those commands back to the heart of what they're really about. With murder, for instance, Jesus says it's not just, that command is not just about the act of murder, but the sins of the heart that lead to murder. With adultery, it's not just about not having sex with people you're not married to, but the lustful fantasies that might lead you to do that. And with divorce, it's not just about always being happy and getting everything you want in your marriage. Instead, it's about dedication, commitment, and faithfulness no matter what you get in your marriage. Quick aside, that does not mean putting up with abuse. Okay? Jesus is preaching against a flippant, short-sighted, oppressive approach to divorce, especially one that victimized women here. But that does not mean sticking it out in a marriage relationship through long-standing pattern, patterns of spousal abuse. And if that is your story, as your pastor, I would encourage you to come and talk to me, and we can talk further about how this command does and does not apply to situations like that. Anyway, That's the example Jesus sets when it comes to the laws of the Old Testament. Not looking at them from a surface level interpretation that empties them of their significance, but instead looking at their deeper meaning, what they're really about, and then obeying that. Filling the law up. Now let's be fair though, Jesus kind of picks some easy examples there, right? Maybe it's just me, but I don't think it's that hard to figure out what these commands about murder and adultery and divorce were really going for. The Pharisees and teachers of the law made them hard to figure out, but they're not really that difficult to understand. There are a lot of other commands in the Old Testament, though, that are more difficult to understand, right? They're harder uh, to, to see what's going on. So what about those commands? Well, let's give it a try. Let's look at some of those commands and see if we can't understand what they're about, what they're saying, and how we might apply them 
even to our lives as Christians today. Let's start with Leviticus 19.19, which says, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Anyone wearing a cotton poly blend today? I actually checked, uh, I was good until I got to my pants. Um, and I thought about preaching without them, but then I thought, you know. <laughs> to be honest, this is one of these commands uh, that people bring up and most like to point to when they argue that the Old Testament is obsolete these days. That's the Old Testament, they say. It says things like, don't wear blended fabrics. Why should we care what it says anymore? Well, here's why. Because when you look at the context of that command and what it's really about, it turns out that it's not as obsolete as we think. You see, in the ancient world, when the Bible was written, most of the religions at the time were what were called fertility cults. It's right there in the name, but they centered around things like good harvests, lots of children, large flocks and herds, fertility. Put simply, those were the things that made people secure in their lives back then, that made them safe, that safeguarded their lives and their legacy. And so as a result, that's what people asked their gods for in their pagan worship practices. They wanted fertility in their lives, and so in order in order to get it, they did all sorts of things in their worship to prod or remind or prompt the gods to give them those things. God, give me lots of kids, a good harvest, flocks and herds, so on and so forth. And the way that they would prompt or remind or prod the gods to do that was through what were called fertility practices. And often, they involved taking, they involved taking two different things, like blended fabrics, and putting them together. It was a reminder to the gods, I need fertility in my life. And don't worry if you don't understand why putting two things together would symbolize fertility, you'll get it when you're older. Given that background then, here's what that full verse says. Keep my decrees, do not mate different kinds of animals, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Those were all pagan fertility practices. You see what's going on here? This verse isn't about fashion. And it's not about the material that goes into your clothes. And it's not about crossbreeding animals or cross-pollinating crops either. What this verse is really about is worship. That's what God is talking about here. In essence, what he's telling his people is, don't you, my people, worship me, your God, like all the other people around you worship their gods. They're trying to manipulate their gods into giving them what they want and need, but I already know what you want. I already know what you need, and I'm going to give it to you regardless. So don't worship me to try to get my faithfulness. You already have it. Worship me because of that. That's what this command is about. It's about worship. Same thing goes for the command against tattoos a few verses later. In Leviticus 19.28, it says, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Again, cutting yourself for the dead or marking yourself with a tattoo, those were ancient pagan religious customs. Put simply, many cultures and religions back then used tattoos and other marks on the body to symbolize allegiance to one's gods or one's ancestors. And so again, God asks his people to be different. He doesn't want them to symbolize their allegiance to him the same way that all their pagan neighbors are doing that. Rather, he wants them to symbolize their allegiance and commitment to him with their lives. 
That's what this command is about. It's not about body art, the way that we might read it today. Instead, what this command is about is the Israelites' allegiance to God over and above anyone or anything else. That's the heart of this law. Finally, what about all the commands of, about shellfish? In Leviticus 11, 9 through 12, the Israelites are commanded only to eat sea creatures that have both fins and scales. In other words, if you were an Israelite and you were a fan of lobster, you were out of luck. Now, admittedly, uh, the distinction, I think this distinction between clean and unclean food in the Old Testament is one of the hardest for us to understand as people today because the cultural context is just so different from where we live uh, these days. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the various Old Testament food laws. But the NIV Study Bible has a footnote that I think does a good job of of, uh, helping illustrate what this is all about. Commenting on the Israelite dietary laws, uh, the study Bible says, the main reason for the laws concerning clean and unclean food is the same as the other laws concerning clean and unclean things, to preserve the sanctity of Israel as God's holy people. In other words, it's, it's kind of like how different sports teams have different colors and logos, right? Um, those colors and logos distinguish different teams from each other so that when they get on the field, it's not just chaos. Well, in the same way, God didn't want his people, the Israelites, to look like everyone else. He didn't want them to blend in. He didn't want them to be like all the pagan nations around them. Instead, he he wanted them to stand out. He wanted them to be a city on a hill, a light to the world, an example of what it looked like to live as his holy people. And so they needed to look different. They needed to live different. And that even came down to the level of what they ate. And so understood that way, the commands of the Old Testament aren't as obsolete as we often make them. After all, like we just read in Leviticus 19.19, we are still called to worship and honor God in some ways, but not others. And just like in Leviticus 19.28, we are still called to give him our ultimate allegiance and commitment over and above anyone or anything else. And just like with the laws about clean and unclean food, we are still called to demonstrate our faithfulness to him in countercultural ways that do not simply blend in with those around us. The deeper meaning of these laws hasn't changed. The way that we obey them in our cultural context might look different, but when it comes to the heart of the law, we as Christian believers are still called to faithfulness and obedience, to filling up the law even today. The truth, though, is that on our own, none of us are actually able to do that. As sinful, broken, fallible human beings, none of us are able to keep the law, to fulfill it, to live righteously the way that God has called us to. And so we need a savior. And that's the good news of the gospel. We have one. His name is Jesus Christ. And in him, God has given us a redeemer, a savior, a king. And he has kept the law for us. He has paid the price for our disobedience. And through him, we are made righteous 
even though none of us actually are. That's God's grace. That's his mercy. That's the depths of his love for us as his people. That even though we are called to keep the law, and we can't, we have a Savior who has made our relationship with God possible anyway. Thanks be to him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, Savior, King, Jesus Christ, you did not come to empty the law, but to fulfill it. You have called us back to the heart of the law, but we still can't fulfill it. And so in our place, you have lived, died, and rose again to grant us salvation. Thank you for your incredible mercy and love. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.